Welcome back to Antisocial Studies. Sure, has it been a while? Yeah, but I am now ready to finish this story. Let's jump back in because I know you've been waiting anxiously for over a year to find out who wins the election of 1960. Let's go. All right, so just off the bat, the 1960s are an impossible decade to teach. Like, it's impossible. So much is happening all the time and at the same time. And on any given day, there's like something hugely important for the civil rights movement, the Vietnam War, student protests, feminism, political division, the space race, the Soviets. It's totally exhausting. No idea what it's like to live in a time in American history where it feels like too much is happening at once. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to divide the 1960s between our two liberal acronym presidents that really defined the decade. So first up in today's episode, JFK. Next episode, my guy, LBJ. And then it's going to all come crashing down with RMN. That doesn't have quite the same ring to it. So today's episode is called the JFK Years, or Cuba, Birmingham, Vietnam. This is Anti-Social Studies. I'm Emily Glankler. Settle in and let's go back in time. Act 1. JFK. So, I mean, it seems pretty clear amongst historians that JFK won the presidency in 1960 because of television. And that's not to say that he wasn't a good candidate otherwise, but when it came down to Kennedy and Nixon, who he was running against, like, Nixon had way more substance and political clout. And it's funny because, in my mind, JFK is just infinitely younger from just an entirely different generation than Richard Nixon. But that's not true. Nixon was just four years older than JFK, and their careers really parallel each other in many ways. Kennedy and Nixon were both elected to Congress in the same year, 1946, after both serving in World War II. So let's talk about these two adversaries, because obviously we're going to come back to Nixon later, so let's just learn about him a little bit now. Basically, before serving as Eisenhower's vice president, Nixon gained fame for being tough on communists during the McCarthy era, and he actually helped uncover a real Soviet spy, Alger Hiss. Well, we think. I, actually, we don't know. Who knows who was a real spy, honestly? Meanwhile, at the same time, JFK was personal friends with McCarthy. Like, Joseph McCarthy dated Kennedy's sister for a while. But while Nixon was hunting down communists, real or imagined, Kennedy, eh, he spent more of his time in Congress going on speaking tours and writing his book, Profiles in Courage. Well, wait, I, actually, he didn't write the book, but he supervised the writing of the book, which sounds really nice. So when the election of 1960 came around, Nixon was the candidate with substance. He had worked his way from a poor Quaker family in California to the second highest office in the land. And Kennedy, I mean, he was a very handsome man who got a sailboat for his 15th birthday and whose dad financed his first congressional campaign saying, quote, with the money I spent, I could have elected my chauffeur. Nice. Now, I'm not saying Kennedy wasn't smart and capable, but like to me, Kennedy is the quintessential modern politician. He really understood the aesthetics of the presidency. He really knew how to say the right words. He knew to surround himself with people who are far smarter than he is and then just take the credit when it goes well. And without television, Kennedy would not have won the election in 1960. 
After the first ever televised debate, voters were polled on who they thought won. And those who watched on TV overwhelmingly chose JFK. But those who listened to the debate on the radio chose Nixon by a landslide. Like JFK just didn't actually say a lot, but he looked and really seemed presidential while saying it. His team had done testing to see which suit and tie would look best against the background. He stared straight into the camera when speaking. He looked strong and confident and young. Meanwhile, Nixon was sweaty. Like, there's just no way around it. Nixon was really sweaty. He was recovering from an illness. He was constantly wiping his brow with a handkerchief. He had recently hurt his knee, so he kept leaning on the podium and kind of shifting his weight back and forth. Like, remember when everyone spent weeks making fun of Marco Rubio for randomly chugging a whole bottle of water just like right in the middle of his rebuttal to Obama's State of the Union address? It was like that. Okay, so let's just skip ahead. JFK won the presidency in 1960 by just 100,000 votes. And the most cohesive voting bloc that swung his way were the Southern Democrats. And this is so important. Remember, going all the way back to like the FDR time, right? The Democratic Party is still super weird. It's still this really mismatched coalition of voters who all benefited from the New Deal. So labor unions, urban intellectuals, farmers, rural white Southerners, and racial minorities. So a lot of times, remember, in this post-New Deal, Jim Crow South, you had white segregationists and black people both considering themselves part of the Democratic Party. It's very weird. And JFK knew that without the support of these white Southern Democrats, he would not have won the presidency. And he knew that if he lost their support, he would lose re-election. Which really brings us to my question, just how liberal was JFK? So I feel like we all have this image of JFK as a young, vibrant president for a new generation. Anytime a young, handsome man runs for office with new ideas that appeal to young people, he's compared to Kennedy, like Beto O'Rourke comes to mind. But when you look at Kennedy's record, he actually didn't get a ton of stuff done. And there's even more stuff, especially with civil rights, that he didn't even really try to do as president, because he was scared of losing support of the Southern Democrats, right? Those white segregationists were fine voting Democrat as long as it was understood that the federal government would stay out of their state business of, you know, oppressing Black people. So in what ways was JFK liberal in the modern sense? Well, I mean, he raised the minimum wage. His Housing Act built low-income homes in poor areas. He proposed health insurance for senior citizens and federal aid to education, but both of those were blocked by Congress. Most interesting to me is that JFK created the Presidential Commission on the Status of Women, headed up by... Let's hear it. Eleanor Roosevelt! This would be her last project as mother of the Democratic Party. She's actually going to pass away before the full findings of the commission can take effect, which is sad. This commission eventually called for action against gender discrimination. It affirmed the right of women to be paid equally. So in 1963, JFK signed the Equal Pay Act. And I mean, it didn't immediately raise the pay of women who were facing workplace discrimination, but it does provide a legal basis for the growing feminist movement, which we'll come back to and really talk about in a few episodes. So JFK really is a New Deal Democrat, right? Even though he is a wealthy sort of elite from Massachusetts, he does seem to understand that a lot of work still needs to be done to support the lower and the lower middle class of this country. But on the other hand, when he was a senator, like JFK voted against 
Eisenhower's Civil Rights Act of 1957. And a lot of historians view this as strategic, right? He's trying to already court these Southern Democrats in advance of his presidential campaign. But like, what's clear to me is that JFK was really less of a liberal or a conservative, and he was more just a politician, right? It does seem that he personally supported the civil rights movement. Like he encouraged his executive branch to submit briefs on behalf of civil rights cases. He supported voter registration drives, but really he had hoped to be noncommittal and enough that he wouldn't make white Southern voters angry. He just wanted to promote his new frontier platform, showcase the best of what the U.S. has to offer as a positive option for the world against Soviet oppression. On the topic of the Cold War, JFK also advocated a flexible response, right? It's like consummate politician, try to do everything and nothing a little bit all at the same time. So Eisenhower had invested in the nuclear arms race, and he had pushed the Soviets to the brink in places like Taiwan in the hopes of avoiding some sort of traditional military confrontation. We didn't want another Korean War. And JFK believed that the U.S. should have more tools than just the military. So yes, he continued like investing in the military, but he also promoted aid projects in Latin America in the hopes of stabilizing their economies and making leftist movements seem less appealing. So over 10 years, the U.S. gave $20 billion to his Latin American Alliance for Progress. And the goal was to establish schools, housing, healthcare, land redistribution. I'll be honest, it really was unsuccessful. A lot of the money seems to have gone to just corrupt governments in Latin America, right? And it stayed at the top. JFK also founded the Peace Corps. So the idea is like, let's send out our bright, idealistic young people to build wells and teach kids in developing nations to show that the U.S. is nice and not scary, right? But the two elements of the Cold War that JFK is most associated with is the space race and Cuba. So 1961, less than one year into his presidency, Soviet Yuri Gagarin became the first person to orbit the Earth, and we freaked out. That year, JFK famously announced, quote, I believe this nation, oh no, I need to work on my JFK. I believe this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon. I'd take some work, okay. One year later, John Glenn was orbiting the Earth. We did it, USA, woo! But really, both JFK's biggest failure and his greatest victory came in Cuba. So we gotta rewind a little bit for some context. Just a year before JFK gets elected, Fidel Castro led the Cuban revolution. He forced many to flee the island, he sentenced others to death by firing squad organized by Che Guevara, and he transformed Cuba into a totalitarian socialist state just 90 miles from the US. So as soon as Castro came to power, the CIA started plotting ways to get him out of power. Between the growing Cuban exile community in Florida and billions of dollars in federal funding, the CIA under Eisenhower concocted the Bay of Pigs invasion. The idea is that they would train and arm 1,400 Cuban exiles, along with a few American soldiers, to land on a beach in Cuba and just like... I don't know, instigate a popular revolt against Castro. I sort of picture this like Michael Scott declaring bankruptcy. Like I think they envisioned that, I don't know, 1400 Cuban exiles would just show up on the beach and be like, let's overthrow Castro. And like the whole island would hear and just spontaneously erupt into a revolution. I mean, for one, this failed to take into account that the Castro regime was actually really popular amongst a majority of the Cuban population at this point, especially the ones who had stayed. But another big problem wasn't really the plan itself. It was the fact that it spanned just two very different presidencies, right? So this was a classic example of Eisenhower brinkmanship. Like, let's directly challenge a new Soviet ally. Let's assume 
that the Soviets are not going to step in to support Cuba. But Kennedy was stepping in and trying a softer approach. He wanted to make the U.S. the good guy to the Soviets bad guy. And so again, it's like this is one of our problems with flipping back and forth between two political parties is that if you have some sort of especially foreign policy that spans multiple presidencies, a lot of times just like the vibes are totally different, right? And so JFK's presidency wasn't really fully committed to this idea that we should help spark an invasion and an insurrection in Cuba. So under new President Kennedy, the brigade landed overnight, and like at first it overwhelmed the local militia, but Castro quickly took control. And by the next morning, as the world was learning about the invasion, Kennedy just kind of chose to back away slowly. He chose to withhold any air and naval support, kind of hoping no one would find out that the U.S. had been involved. Yeah, I don't know. It was pretty obvious. So the invasion was a massive failure. They were defeated within three days. Those who hadn't been killed in the fighting were sent to Cuban prisons. The invasion also solidified Castro as a national hero, right? Like, oh my gosh, he defended our island from the United States. Whoops. So it was clear that Kennedy was looking to take a different approach than Harry, Atomic Bomb Truman, and Dwight D. Brinkmanship Eisenhower. And Really, this was on full display in a successful way with his handling of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Now, we have so much more to cover. I'm not going to get into the Cuban Missile Crisis right now. For more detail on the event itself, you should go back and check out Season 1. But JFK basically sent ships to block the Soviet missiles from arriving in Cuba. He called it a naval quarantine to avoid the more militant term blockade. Synonyms for the win, right? Meanwhile, JFK's brother slash Attorney General Bobby Kennedy was secretly negotiating with the Soviets. In the end, the Soviets dismantled the missiles if the U.S. guaranteed that it would never invade Cuba again. And then secretly, Bobby Kennedy had arranged for U.S. missiles in Turkey to be dismantled within the next six months. The big takeaway is that JFK's diplomatic approach, this flexible response, in this case, in the Cuban Missile Crisis really helped diffuse this event that got the world closer to a nuclear event than ever before. And I still to this day don't think we give Kennedy enough credit for his handling of this Cuban Missile Crisis. Maybe that's a crazy thing to say because I do think he gets credit, but like not enough, right? For him to step in as an incredibly young president, he's surrounded by very hardline, very experienced, like World War II hero generals who are really like itching for a chance to show their strength against the Soviets, especially in a place like Cuba that we also wanted to topple and reinstall a new government, right? It would have been a win-win for us. For JFK to step in and like stick to his guns and say, no, actually, I think that we're going to negotiate with the Soviets. I don't think Khrushchev wants to go to war the same way we don't want to go to war. It was a huge game of chicken and we won and the world was sort of saved. Kind of a big deal. Good job, JFK. That was just act one. Like we're only at the end of act one. And JFK was only president for three years. Y'all, so much happens in this decade. So deep breath, let's keep going. Act two, the early civil rights movement. So like we're gonna be talking about the civil rights movement and other movements that swept the country in the 1960s and 70s for the next few episodes. And I first wanna explain why I'm doing it this way because really it's so difficult to organize this era in American history, right? You can do it thematically. I could have done an episode on the civil rights movement, an episode on the women's movement, so on and so forth. But I decided to do it chronologically because I really want to hit home how long a lot of these movements lasted. I do think there's this idea that MLK 
Ray, like, tells everyone to boycott the buses, then he has a dream, and then civil rights is successful. And it feels very quick. It feels like it all happened within the span of a few years, but we're talking decades, right? And so it's the same approach as, like, if you in your U.S. history class only really do a deep dive into slavery right before the Civil War, you kind of inadvertently get this impression that slavery didn't last as long as it did when it really lasted hundreds of years. So this is why I'm approaching it this way, is I want to keep coming back to these movements throughout the next few episodes, because I really want us to understand how long these people were fighting and were pushing before they finally got some of the big successes that we now celebrate. Anyway, so let's back up for a minute and just answer a really simple question, which is why now, right? Like why did all these various rights movements all just seem to explode kind of from out of nowhere in the 19, late 50s and then the 1960s? And I mean, first of all, hopefully you know by now that they didn't come from out of nowhere, but there were a few factors that helped make the 60s a decade of kind of unprecedented unrest and social change. Number one, we can't underestimate the importance of World War II in this arena. Like a few episodes ago, we talked about black soldiers fighting for the double V, victory against racism abroad and at home. During the war, the American population mobilized behind a common goal, finding new communities in urban areas that were growing thanks to wartime production. The post-war world with Eleanor Roosevelt helping write the UN's Universal Declaration of Human Rights, among other things, was just full of people around the world talking about basic rights for everyone, including people of color. Decolonization in the 1940s through the 70s is sweeping across Africa and Asia as European empires fall apart, and Black Americans are watching as new African nations are created out of the rubble of white supremacy. Meanwhile, there's political changes at home, too. So the Supreme Court, under Chief Justice Earl Warren, which is more simply known as the Warren Court, handed down a few key decisions. In a few different decisions, the court asserted a new principle of, quote, one person, one vote. Which begs the question, was that not the way it worked before? And turns out, no, of course it wasn't. So in many states, districts were drawn just based on area without even taking into consideration population, like at all. So there would be a chunk of rural land with 500 people that might get the same representation as an urban area with over 100,000 people. And like, what? One, how did I not know that this was a thing? And two, how did it take us until the 1950s to be like, I don't know, maybe maps should be drawn based on population and maybe we should use all the information that we know about where people live. Like, I guess this is really evidence of growing urbanization, right? If we remember from a few episodes back, 1920 is the first year in American history where more Americans are living in cities than not. So this is really evidence of just like the changing demographics of the country. But it's wild to me that the Supreme Court or really no one in the federal government ever sat down and just said, yeah, each person gets one vote as far as representation until now. Anyway. So the Warren Court changed that. So all of a sudden voting districts for local elections, for state legislatures, and for Congress had to be roughly equal in population. And so all of a sudden, in the 1950s, urban areas, which tended to be more liberal anyway, and thanks to early white flight, were becoming more diverse, they all of a sudden gained more political power. Meanwhile, the first boomers were reaching peak rebellious phase by 1960, right? The boomers were enormous, they were young, they had grown up during an economic boom. A much higher percentage of them were going to college where they would be away from the suburbs, exposed to diversity and new ideas. 
And I mean, the baby boomers would have been this obnoxious young generation telling their parents how old fashioned they were no matter what, because that's just how generational change works. But the boomers happen to have a lot of legitimate reasons to get out that righteous young adult rage through protest, right? Cold War interventions in foreign governments, the stifling of free speech in the name of patriotism, plus the aforementioned looming nuclear apocalypse, right? And while not all white boomers got involved in the civil rights movement, not by a long shot, enough of them got involved that media attention, which really only seems to listen when white people point things out, began covering the plight of black Americans. And those homes in the suburbs were soon seeing black people on their television sets, sometimes performing on Nat King Cole's short-lived variety show and more often being attacked by police, dogs, and fire hoses as they marched peacefully for equal rights. So there were a lot of reasons why civil rights seemed to explode by 1960. And the main thrust of the civil rights movement, and really an easy way to kind of chart its course, is just tying it to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s career. So he first rose to national prominence as the voice of the year-long Montgomery bus boycott in 1955. Although, shout out to all the women, and especially Joanne Robinson, who was the president of the Women's Political Council in Montgomery, who actually organized and sustained the boycott, right? Dr. King is the voice and the face, and of course is incredibly influential, but I just want to make sure that we're all clear that it was mostly black women who were doing the actual day-to-day work of figuring out how to get people to their jobs without them riding the bus. Anyway. Just a few months before Rosa Parks was arrested, a 15-year-old boy named Emmett Till was brutally murdered, also in Alabama. And so for many Black people, including a young John Lewis, these two events in 1955 mixed together to mobilize a new generation of Black Americans. So an organization that you should know is the Southern Christian Leadership Council, or the SCLC. It was formed during the Eisenhower administration, and Dr. King was its first president. They're going to become the more, quote-unquote, established mainstream leaders of the movement. And they sometimes work with, and other times they're sort of at odds with, younger groups like SNCC and more radical black power organizations. So the first wave of civil rights activism really happened under Eisenhower in the mid to late 1950s, but those victories were fairly localized, Right, The Montgomery buses were desegregated, but not much else. And the Little Rock Nine went to school that one year, but then most had to finish their education by correspondence because white people would rather have no school than have their kids go to school with black kids. By the JFK era, activists had grown more organized and they were thinking bigger. Many of the most iconic civil rights protests that occurred in the early 1960s, though, were organized by young college students, inspired by what they saw in Montgomery and Little Rock during their formative teenage years. These are black boomers, right? In 1964, students at North Carolina Agricultural and Technical College sat at the whites-only lunch counter at Woolworth's department store. And by the end of that week, 300 students had joined the peaceful protest. And within two months, the sit-in movement had spread to 54 cities, mostly college towns. To be clear, the protest was peaceful, but that doesn't mean the response was. People were beaten, dragged out of segregated establishments, and the mainstream organizations of the NAACP and the SCLC were really nervous that the young college students were getting ahead of themselves, right? Slow down. Ella Baker, 
badass. Although she was in her late 50s by this point, she actually worried that the SCLC, the mainstream establishment where she worked, was out of touch with the younger generation. She put together a meeting of young activists that would eventually become SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. I also want us to notice that like generational debates are everywhere. There were even generational debates within the civil rights movement, younger versus older. And it's funny because by the early 1960s, Dr. King is part of this quote unquote older establishment, even though he's still very, very young, right? He's still in his early 30s when he's now this like world known civil rights leader and is now kind of being treated almost as like the old guy in the room with these young college activists saying that sometimes he's moving too slow. So soon SNCC chapters pop up on college campuses around the country, but especially across the South. And one year later in 1961, many of those students would join the Freedom Riders. So in 1960, the Warren Court had ruled that segregated public buses were unconstitutional, but I mean, of course, the South refused to integrate. So students like John Lewis would get on buses and ride them into the South. These were the Freedom Riders. And they knew that when they arrived at the bus terminal, they would at best be arrested and more often would be beaten by mobs of white supremacists and police officers waiting for them. As one example in Birmingham, like Freedom Riders were met with a gang of men with bats, chains, and lead pipes. And no law enforcement arrived to stop the beating because Commissioner Eugene Bull Connor had given the police the day off for Mother's Day. Oh, right. And Bull Connor also told the local Ku Klux Klan to beat the riders until, quote, it looked like a bulldog got a hold of them. Don't worry, Bull Connor. We're going to come back to you soon. Meanwhile, in Washington, JFK was slow to actually propose legislation, right? If you remember those Southern Democrats who helped him barely beat out Nixon. But even though JFK did often turn his back on civil rights activists pleading for federal action, he took a lot of steps that would really be a big deal if we don't all now compare them to what is going to come under LBJ. And in this way, he's sort of like the Herbert Hoover to Johnson's FDR. So JFK brought 40 black Americans to high level government positions. He appointed Thurgood Marshall, who's the lawyer who had successfully argued the Brown versus the board case a few years earlier to be a federal judge, which paved the way for Marshall to become the first black Supreme Court justice just a few years later. Kennedy's Justice Department, run by his brother Bobby, was way more active in supporting the civil rights movement. They filed lawsuits around the country, helping African Americans register to vote, among other things. But JFK was the consummate politician. Like with the Bay of Pigs, he kind of tried to have it both ways. He said he supported the Freedom Riders, but also they needed a, quote, cooling off period. You know, the exact wrong thing to tell someone who was rightfully angry, like, just calm down. In the end, JFK negotiated a compromise with Southern governments who agreed to protect the Freedom Riders from violence, but they were still going to be arrested. Okay, thanks, Kennedy. Really, the biggest civil rights event during JFK's presidency, and really this early part of the 1960s civil rights movement, is in Birmingham. Bull Connor was the paradoxically named Commissioner of Public Safety, and he was known across the Jim Crow South as a grade-A racist asshole. When Dr. King and other leaders were looking for the site of their next big demonstration, they chose Birmingham because they knew Bull Connor would respond with violence. And that's something important to note about civil disobedience. It's not about just being peaceful. It's about putting yourself and your body in harm's way to bring attention to oppression and then not responding with violence even when attacked. So the SCLC organized a series of sit-ins and protests to integrate, quote, the most segregated city in America, Birmingham. 
These events were designed knowing that they would lead to violence and mass arrests. And when Dr. King himself was arrested, he wrote his letter from a Birmingham jail defending their nonviolent tactics and calling out white moderates who were more concerned with order and propriety than actually supporting the movement. And I think every single one of you should go read the entire letter from a Birmingham jail. It is a seminal work in American history. These initial protests lasted over a month in 1963, and as many of the adult protesters sat in jail, young people came out to take their place. James Bevel of the SCLC trained students from elementary school to college in nonviolent tactics, and families across the country watched on their televisions as the children's marchers were attacked by police. They were sprayed with high-pressure fire hoses and then arrested. The escalating violence televised pressured JFK to finally propose in 1963 a civil rights bill to address segregation. Just one day after this announcement in Mississippi, World War II veteran and NAACP field organizer Medgar Evers was murdered while organizing a voter registration drive, and the trial of his killer, who was a white citizens counselor, basically like another version of the KKK, just highlighted the racism of the justice system because all white juries repeatedly failed to reach any sort of a verdict. Things were reaching a peak in 1963, and civil rights leaders understood that they needed to take advantage of the national attention between Birmingham, JFK's announcement, and Medgar Evers. They needed to take their movement to Congress. So in August of 1963, 250,000 people gathered at the Lincoln Memorial for the famous March on Washington, where Dr. King gave his I Have a Dream speech. By the end of the summer, JFK's proposed civil rights bill was already fairly watered down with compromises, while Southern Democrat segregationists vowed to hold up the bill any way they could. But two events pushed Congress over the edge. First, in September, the KKK bombed Birmingham's 16th Street Baptist Church, killing four young girls aged 11 to 14. And this was the third bombing in the state in the last two weeks since a federal court order had mandated the integration of all Alabama schools. And the nation watched as Dr. King spoke at a memorial service in front of 8,000 people. Meanwhile, nothing was being done to find the murderers. In fact, we now know that the FBI under J. Edgar Hoover had information about the identities of the bombers, but they did nothing. And of course, two months after the church bombing, Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, Texas. More on the assassination and conspiracies at the end of this episode, but for now, just know that his death would be used masterfully by LBJ to push important civil rights legislation through Congress in his memory. And the irony should be lost on no one that the death of one white man arguably did more to get Congress to act on civil rights than the murder and oppression of millions of Black Americans over 350 years. We'll come back to that in the next episode. Because that was just act two. We're not done yet. Oh my God. We haven't even talked about Vietnam. Act three, Vietnam. Okay. This one's actually surprisingly going to be quick and partly because I'm tired, but also because we're going to get way more into the Vietnam War next episode. But for now, I just want us to understand where we were at in Southeast Asia by the end of Kennedy's presidency. So the escalation of U.S. involvement in Vietnam actually follows the timeline of the growing civil rights movement almost exactly, which makes me want to be suspicious, but I don't have time to get into it right now. So World War II sparked decolonization movements around the world, including one in Vietnam led by Ho Chi Minh against French imperialism. By 1954, for reference, this is one year before Rosa Parks sparked the Montgomery bus boycotts, 
1954, the French forces lost at Dien Bien Phu, and it was clear that they were going to have to withdraw from their colony in Vietnam. Unfortunately, dismantling French Indochina was slightly complicated because, you know, the Cold War was raging. So the U.S. and the Soviets both thought, we know, we'll just divide Vietnam in half. Like, sure, this plan failed miserably in Berlin and Korea, but third time's the charm, right? So they divided the new country at the 17th parallel with Ho Chi Minh in charge of the North, now a communist state backed by the Soviets in China, and No Din Diem's anti-communist regime in South Vietnam backed by the United States. They scheduled elections for 1956 that were going to reunite the country, which is adorably optimistic because of course those don't happen. So let me clarify a few things. Korea and Vietnam, as far as American history is concerned, are really similar in a lot of ways. Both were former colonies that were divided up as pawns in this Cold War conflict, a communist North versus an anti-communist South. But Vietnam is different from Korea in a pretty important way, because while the Kim regime in North Korea was and is undoubtedly brutal and oppressive, Ho Chi Minh's government was actually really popular across Vietnam. And Diem, the president of South Vietnam, was who was propped up by the U.S., was a really unpopular leader. For one, he was a Catholic who had been raised and spent most of his life in the United States, and he persecuted the Buddhist majority in his country. And this is where the famous footage comes from of the Buddhist monk setting himself on fire in protest. That was in South Vietnam. And unlike in Korea, where the communist North was the one who sparked the conflict by invading, in Vietnam, it was Diem who refused to hold elections because he knew Ho Chi Minh would win. After refusing to hold the promised elections in the South, Eisenhower increased aid to South Vietnam. Huh, that's weird. That seems anti-democratic. Meanwhile, Ho Chi Minh began organizing a resistance movement to reunify the country, including a lot of South Vietnamese people who wanted out of Diem's dictatorship. A lot of them would become the Viet Cong. So the tricky thing about the war in Vietnam is that it's not as simple like it was in Korea as a South versus the North. We are supporting the South against the North, but we are also U.S. soldiers fighting with South Vietnamese soldiers against other South Vietnamese people who want the North to win. It's a traditional sort of civil war and an insurgency all at the same time. It's a mess. So when JFK came into office, he increased the U.S. presence in South Vietnam from 2,000 to 15,000. And these were so-called military advisors. And to be clear, the general public was not paying attention to any of this. Right, We were not really aware that the U.S. was very involved still at all in what was going on in Vietnam, and honestly, most people in the United States would have probably not been able to tell you where Vietnam was on a map. Remember, this is all happening at the same time as civil rights protests, Castro's revolution in Cuba, JFK's election, the Bay of Pigs, yada, yada, yada. So the U.S. sending a few advisors to South Vietnam was pretty low on the list of concerns for most Americans. And this changed in 1963, this crazy year, right? 1963 is Birmingham, it's the March on Washington, it's all these things happening. When a group of Vietnamese generals plotted to overthrow Diem. And JFK actually went along with the coup. He supported the generals as they overthrew and executed Diem, who was a brutal dictator. But all of a sudden, there was a power vacuum in South Vietnam as Ho Chi Minh loomed in the north and the Viet Cong were building defenses throughout the southern countryside. Oh, right. And JFK was assassinated three weeks later. So to recap, 
LBJ is going to be sworn in as president one year after the Cuban Missile Crisis puts us closer than ever to nuclear war, three months after a quarter of a million people march on Washington demanding racial justice, one month after four young black girls were killed in a church in Birmingham, and three weeks after the U.S. supported a coup that left our ally vulnerable to communist attack. Awesome. Good luck, Johnson. So what is Kennedy's legacy? If I'm being totally honest, besides, you know, like saving the world from nuclear apocalypse, his main legacy is what he represented to a lot of young people. Kennedy represented hope to a whole new generation of baby boomers who were becoming politically aware and educated and active in the late 50s, early 1960s, right? So a lot of people talk about how they feel about Kennedy as opposed to what he actually did and accomplished. Kennedy and his election in 1960 represents the hope that this massive baby boom generation had for this decade. The 1960s starts with hope and a handsome young president with a beautiful wife, and it ends with multiple assassinations, two Kennedys, Dr. King, Malcolm X. It ends with the golden age of serial killers with the Manson murders and the Zodiac killer. Like it ends in Richard Nixon, right? It just ends so differently than it began. And so Kennedy for our purposes really matters not in what he did so much as what he represented and then how that view of America is going to get totally demolished really by the end of this decade. So next episode, how does Johnson step in to arguably the most difficult time to suddenly become the president of the United States, except maybe after Lincoln's assassination, which was another Johnson. That's a whole other fun conspiracy theory. Speaking of, if you want to hear a deep dive into the Kennedy assassination and the ensuing conspiracy theories, you can go join my Patreon where they are able to listen to a special podcast episode right now. It's live. Go to patreon.com slash antisocial studies. As always, thank you for listening. If you want to support, you can go join my Patreon. You can follow me on every social media platform you can. Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, Instagram. Share this podcast with anyone else you think would find it interesting. Thanks for listening.